You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Welcome you to Harvest Bible Chapel. My name is Ted. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest. And if you're uh, here today to support a family member or a friend who was getting baptized today, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, we as a church have been uh, studying a book of the Bible called Nehemiah. And uh, you see people around you, they probably have Bibles with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now with copies of the Bible. You can just put your hand up or holler at them. And uh, we're a portable church. We don't have pews. We just have awesome ushers. And so uh, don't let their voyage be in vain. If you don't have a Bible in your hand, put your hand up. It's going to make a lot more sense if you're able to follow along. And the sermon notes that you received on your way in will have the page number that we're on uh, today. Nehemiah is a bit of an obscure book. And um, um, so I want to give you a little bit of a background before we jump into the ninth chapter. Nehemiah was an official in uh, the court at the palace um, in the middle of the Persian Empire in 445 BC. And he was one of the right-hand men of uh, King Artaxerxes. Uh, but he was, he was Jewish uh, by birth and he found out about what was happening in the city of Jerusalem. And, and among the people of Israel, it used to be this great country. Jerusalem was this beautiful capital city, and yet it was in complete ruins. And so Nehemiah uh, uh, changed his job, asked for permission to leave the palace and to go and travel about 700 kilometers on foot uh, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. And God was with him. Even though there was all kinds of trouble and disunity on the inside among the people and all of this opposition and these threats and attacks on the outside, the wall was reconstructed in 52 days. And then after the wall was rebuilt, they got together, and similar to what we're doing right now, they got together and they started reading the Bible And something happens when people get together and they start reading the Bible. First and foremost, when you read the Bible, you learn about theology. It teaches you about God. You learn things about God that you didn't know. And there are some things that you can learn from God just by looking at the world around you, looking at the stars. You can see that he's clearly a a designer. We can see that he's, he's clearly powerful. But there are some other things about him that we can't know unless he's told us. So they're reading the Bible. They're learning about God. But the, the Bible doesn't just teach us theology. It also teaches us anthropology. It teaches us about ourselves. And these people were getting together, reading the Bible, day after day, for, literally for hours on end. And learning about God and learning about themselves. And they learned that there were some things that they needed to ask forgiveness for. And... As we've gone through this series called Never Give Up, looking at the life of Nehemiah, we've had a number of reasons why we should never give up. And it has a lot to do with who God is. And this is another reason why we should never give up. is because God is ready to forgive. That God is ready to forgive. Maybe you're here today and you are crushed by the weight of guilt or shame that you feel about things that you've done, either in your distant past or even more recently, you need to understand that God is ready to forgive you, that he has made a way for you to be forgiven. 
And so if you look at Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And so this is a a sign of mourning. They weren't eating food. They were fasting. And they wore sackcloth. We, when we go to a funeral, we tend to wear black. It's a symbol of mourning. And they took the symbol even a step further. They took dirt from the ground and put it on their heads. All of these pictures of sadness, of contrition. Verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. Now this separation from foreigners, this wasn't a racial thing. God's kingdom, God's temple, God's city, God's people, and God's church has always been open to all people. But the people of Israel at this time were engaged in some relationships that were unhealthy. The the foreigners that are being described here is not just that they were from a foreign country, but that they believed in foreign gods. They believed in gods that were contrary to what the true God of Israel was about. And they needed to end those relationships. And it says that they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Notice though, there's a present tense. They confessed their sins, but they also confessed the iniquities of their fathers, the ones who had gone before them. And then it says in verse 4, sorry, verse 3, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. We're not going to be together for three hours today. You're, st- you're going to get to eat lunch. Don't worry. And it says, and for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. They spent another three hours confessing their sin and worshiping the Lord. Now, verse 4 and 5 is one of those passages of the Bible that has lots of confusing names uh, to, to pronounce. And so uh, you can read that on your own. I'm not going to go through the embarrassment of trying to pronounce uh, ancient Hebrew names in front of a few hundred people. But we're given a picture of what these people say in verse 6. They say, you are the Lord, you alone have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and all of the host of heaven worships you. Now I said from the outset that uh, what we're about to read today is all about forgiveness. And it's interesting to note that when they open their mouth to ask God for forgiveness, they don't talk about themselves. We live in a world that's obsessed with talking about ourselves. We have our own personal websites devoted to showing pictures or little updates about things that are happening with ourselves. We are obsessed with self. But when, when you're truly confessing your sin, when these people are confessing their sin, they're not talking about themselves. In, in verse 6, they say the word you five times. They don't talk about themselves. They don't come seeking forgiveness, being like, oh God, this is what I did. This is who I am. Let me tell you the story. No, they start with who God is. And this is vitally important for us to understand. You see, some people think that the way to God is through ourselves. That the way to God is somehow do some good deeds Become enlightened, study hard and think, and you will somehow get to God. You will receive eternal life. You will go to heaven. That couldn't be further from the truth. The way to heaven is paved in forgiveness. Our only hope for getting to God is to ask him for forgiveness. And if you're taking notes today, here's the first thing I want you to jot down. It's the reality that forgiveness does not depend on the sincerity of our confession, 
but on the strength of God's character. It doesn't, it, we don't end up being forgiven because we confessed really well. They didn't come to God and say, God, I'm really, really, really sorry. God, I'm very, 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 very sad. God, please, 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 please forgive me. They didn't talk about themselves. They talked about God because they knew their only hope for receiving forgiveness was based on who God is, not on how well they're able to go through a religious exercise of confession. And this is important because most people think we got to earn our way to God. But the truth is, the only way to get to God is through forgiveness. But then we think, okay, so I've got to earn forgiveness. But you can't earn forgiveness. It's all a gift from God. And so these people, they start to focus on who God is. Now I want to be really clear here with what I just said. When I say it doesn't depend on sincerity, I'm not advocating for insincerity. I'm not telling you that you need to develop, you know, just to be more disingenuous in your spiritual life or to embrace hypocrisy. That's not what I'm getting after. But what I'm telling you is that you don't need to feel the pressure in confessing your sin to make sure that you're doing it right. Your only hope of forgiveness is that God is a loving and gracious and kind God, not that you are saying the right word. Sometimes we can stumble in our prayer life because we're so focused on just saying the right things. Listen, God knows our heart. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And our ability to confess pales in comparison to God's ability to forgive. And that's our only hope. And so they're going to uh, describe who God is. They're going to focus on who he is. And if you look at verse 6, it says, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. They're going to paint a picture of who God is. And if, you, if we were sitting down at a coffee shop, I'd probably grab a napkin and I'd draw it something like this. They're talking about who God is. Verse 6 talks about how God is the creator. And that you go to, a, you go to a, a telescope to see how big and beautiful and complicated the cosmos is. And then you go to a microscope and look at how small and intricate and complicated and yet beautiful the cell and the atom is. All of these things point to God as the creator. That he is the one who is responsible for all of these things. Now some people associate Christianity with conservatism. And uh, uh, conservatism uh, sort of gets a, a, a bad rap for, for not valuing the environment, not caring about the earth and all of that sort of thing. And, and, and Christians get sort of lumped into that. Now that impression of conservatism might not be accurate at all, but the, that impression of Christianity is definitely not accurate. Christians believe that this planet was created by their God. And Christians believe what is said here, that all of the host of heaven worships him. That everything is designed to bring glory to him. And so a Christian cares not for the environment just in and of itself, but cares for the world around it because it's the very creation of God. That he made it and that it is beautiful and that we are to steward it and to look after it. And so God is our a creator. Then they say in verse 7, You are the Lord, the God, of, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give, 
to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. That land with all the Canaanites and the Hittites and the termites, all of that, that's the, that's the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. And the second thing that these people say about God is that God's creator, secondly, that he is the promise keeper. That he kept his promise to Abraham. The people of Israel look back to Abraham. He is the founding father of their nation. He and his wife Sarah were old. They were beyond childbearing years. And yet God brought about a miraculous geriatric pregnancy to establish the people of God. And he promised them that land, the promised land. And they say, and they say here that you kept your promise for you are righteous. Then in verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Egypt is not the promised land, but that's where the people of God ended up. They were in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all the servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. God's creator, God's promise keeper, God's a rescuer. He had rescued them. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God did fulfill his promise to Abraham. They did become a mighty nation, but they found themselves in Egypt. They found themselves being oppressed by Pharaoh. And God performed these these signs, these plagues. Ultimately, he set them free through the Red Sea. If you look at uh, verse 11, it says, And you divided the sea before them so that, you, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast off their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. He rescued them from Egypt and he led them. And not only is he the creator, not only is he the lawgiver, not only is he, sorry, not only is he the promise keeper and the, and the rescuer, he's also the lawgiver. Verse 13 says, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them your commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. God is a God who speaks. God is a God who has told us how he wants us to live. And some people get the wrong idea about God and his law, about commandments, thinking that somehow God is some cosmic killjoy who's just up there making sure no one's having too much fun. No. God gives us law because he loves us. God gives us rules because he wants a relationship with us. When God says don't do that, he's really saying don't hurt yourself. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to show us how to live. He knows the manufacturer's specifications because he is the manufacturer. He knows what we were created for and that's what the law does. It tells us how we're supposed to live. Beyond giving their giving them the law. In verse 15 it says, you, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them, go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. So God was their provider. This is to talking about them wandering through the wilderness. They left Egypt, but then they, uh, how are they going to eat? I mean, things were bad in Egypt, but they, uh, they had 
They had a regular meal. They had a roof over their heads. They had water to drink. And now they've left Egypt. But how are they going to look after themselves? Well, God looked after them. He provided bread and he provided water for them miraculously. All of this comes under the heading that God is good. That God is good. Creator, promise keeper, rescuer, lawgiver, provider. Forgiveness depends on the strength of God's character. And God's character shows that he is good to us. But then in verse 16, it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. After God had done all of these things, he was their creator, the promise keeper, rescuer, lawgiver, provider. How are the people going to respond to God's goodness? They respond like this. They were proud. It says they acted presumptuously. They were stubborn. That's what stiff-necked means. They were disobedient. It says they refused to obey in verse 17. Ungrateful, saying that they, they were not mindful of the things that God had done in setting free. He had been so good to them, and yet they turned away from him. And they eventually became idolaters, worshiping other gods. God is good, and this is how the people of Israel responded to God's goodness. The truth is, this is how we all respond to God's goodness. God has rescued us out of different situations. God has provided to us. God has spoken to us. This might be the first time you've ever heard from the Bible or heard one of God's commands, but God's given you a conscience to show you what his law is. And God created you. And how do we turn around and treat him? This isn't just their story. This is our story. But here's the good news. Look at the way God responds to their response. It says in verse 17 at the end, it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So God is good. We don't respond to his goodness. But the good news is, is that God also is gracious. To be gracious to someone, to show grace, is to treat someone in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. Just think about if you were God. If you did all of those things for the people of Israel and showed nothing but kindness and demonstrated your power and then they turned on you in that way, what would you do in response? But what did God do? It says that he was ready to forgive. He was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Some people say that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful, angry God filled with righteous indignation. And that somehow in the New Testament he sort of has a change of heart. You know, Jesus is just a little softer and all of that. That, Listen, that couldn't be further from the truth. This is the Old Testament declaring that God is gracious that he is merciful, that he's abounding in steadfast love, and he's here today, and he's ready to forgive you. He's ready to offer the forgiveness the same way he offered it to them. Notice how verse 16 and verse 17 have two important conjunctions. I'm sorry, I used to be an English teacher, so you've got to bear with me here. A tr- uh, conjunctions are parts of a sentence that indicate a, tr- a transition. Do you see the first one at the beginning of verse 16, the word but? 
So God did all of these things, all of this goodness showered on them, but they refused to obey. But then there's another beautiful conjunction. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive. This is how we respond to God, but this is how God responds to us. This is so incredible that he would be so gracious. Then verse 18 gives another example. It says, even even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. It's talking about when they started to worship an idol. And we think that idolatry, that's, you know, other religions, that's other countries, that's other times. We don't, we don't have idols here. We don't bow down to statues here in the, in the Western world in the 21st century. Oh, we bow down to idols all the time. It may not be a statue. But we worship idols like having a certain position. Once I get that, once I get that, that promotion, I will just do everything I can in order to find myself in that position or a a possession, a status symbol of something that we long for. Once I have that house with the two-car garage, once I have a car, I forget the garage, once I, once I, whatever it is, we focus in on that thing. It's, it's, it's a position, it's possessions. It might be a person. We, we worship celebrities. We worship sometimes our family members. Sometimes our friends will do anything for them. And sometimes those things that we do for them are not healthy. Or we worship pleasure. We just want to feel good. All of these things are contemporary idols. And listen, the old statues, they promise the same thing. They didn't just bow down to the statue because the statue was beautiful. They bowed down to the statue because their religion told them that if you bow down to the statue, you'll get the position and the possessions and the people and the pleasure. They were a means to an end. The ultimate idol are those longings that are inside of every human heart. But God is so gracious. Verse 19, in your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, spiritual needs. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, physical needs, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. God is good. God is gracious. God treats us in a way that we don't deserve. Some of us wonder, you know, why doesn't God just wipe out all the bad people? I just advise you to be really careful when you ask that question. Because how do you define a bad person? Because there's, you know, there's people uh, on the planet right now who are doing horrible atrocities. It's quite clear. There's been people throughout history, Stalin and, and Hitler and Pol Pot. There's people who, it's quite clear that, that, that that's a bad guy. But the que- we're, we're so confident that there's bad people and that there's good people. But my question for you is, where's the threshold between being good and being bad? And how are you so sure that you're on the side of being good? And how many sins away are you from becoming bad and being wiped out? And how far away are the bad people? How many good deeds are they away from becoming good? You see, the Bible is quite clear 
that no one is good. That we all find ourselves on the bad people side of the line. These people that are being described in Nehemiah chapter 9, you can read about them in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers. These people considered themselves good people. We would have thought of them as good people. They would have been our neighbors. And yet they did evil things towards God because all sin ultimately is not just what we do to other people, but all sin is ultimately how we respond to God in his goodness to us and his grace to us. So we're all bad people. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God is good and that God is gracious. And also this, that God is patient. God is patient. Verse 22 says, You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. That's, the, again, part of the promised land. Verse 23, You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their forefathers that they would enter and possess. Verse 24, So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand, and their kings, and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled, and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness." And so God was patient with them for 40 years. Then he put them into the promised land. That brings us uh, to the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. As they're reviewing the history of the Bible. Then verse 26 starts with another conjunction. Nevertheless. And we're going to see how the people responded. Not just to God's goodness, but now how did they respond to God's grace? It's not going to be very well. See, here's what, here's what God did in his grace. He gave them a place. Verse 22 says they went into the land. It says that they multiplied their descendants like the stars in the sea. Not just a place, but gave them people to populate the place. And he gave them prosperity. They moved into houses that they didn't build. They were drinking from cisterns that they didn't dig. They were bringing in a harvest of, of, of plant and substance that they didn't even plant themselves. And this is how they responded again. It says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you that they, and they committed great blasphemies. More of the same. More of telling God disobedience, rebellion, lawlessness, violence, and blasphemy. And if I were to kind of diagram God's patience here, here's what happened. The people were up, they were doing really well, and it says that in verse 26, they were disobedient. And look at what happened as a result of their disobedience. It says, it says, verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. You see, when you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. When God said, thou shall not, when he says, don't do that, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. And when we sin, we experience suffering. Some of us are living through that right now. And so we rebelled against God. We ended up suffering. And then to keep reading in verse 27, it says, And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. So they cried out. So they start to look up. 
They go off on their own. Things fall apart. So then they turn to God. And then how does God respond? Do you think God would finally be, enough is enough. I'm pushing you away from me. But no, verse 27 says, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. What's being described here, this is what happens in the book of Judges and the book of First and Second Kings. The people turn away from God. Things fall apart for them. They begin to suffer. In their suffering, they cry out to God. God hears them and gets them back on their feet. That's what happens in verse 26 and 27. Now, you've got to think verse 28 has got to be something different, right? They finally learned their lesson now. Verse 28 says, But after they had rest, and di- after they, had rest they did evil again. Here comes the cycle again. And then in verse 28, and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. The same cycle. How often did this happen? Keep reading in verse 28. Many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Reading the Old Testament will make your head spin. Because it's the same thing, doing evil, suffering, crying out to God, he saves you. Doing evil, suffering, crying out to God, he saves you. It's the same cycle. It says that many times he delivered them. This is the patience of God. Keep reading verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Stop going off the cliff. Stop initiating that cycle. He kept lovingly warning them, it says, and Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. How patient is God? Look at verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Verse 31, another conjunction. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's two pairs of conjunctions in verse 16 and 17, but they acted presumptuously, but God is rich in mercy. And there's two matching conjunctions in verses 26 to 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Nevertheless, God is great in mercy. They're retelling the story of this is what God does for us and this is how we respond to him, but this is what God does for us and yet this is how we respond to him. It shows the patience for many times in verse 28, for many years in verse 30. God is so patient. I gotta tell you, I'm so thankful that God is patient, that he has been patient with me. And And maybe you've been just living this life of this cycle. You need to understand that God is patient with you. And that he is not waiting for you to get your life together, to climb back up to him. He is waiting for you to cry out to him and to ask him to rescue you. He is so patient. So God is good, God is gracious, God is patient, and then God is faithful God is faithful. This is the fourth sign of God's character, which is the bedrock foundation of our forgiveness. Our forgiveness is not rooted in the sinking sand of our sincerity, but in the solid rock of who God is and his character, that he's faithful. You'll notice in verse 32 that the pronouns are going to change. They were talking uh, so far in this chapter about they and them and, and 
oh, those guys over there, now they're going to talk about us and our and we. It's going to get personal. What they're going to do right now with the Bible is what we should do. We look at what the Bible says, we understand it in its proper context, and then we look to our lives and say, how does this matter for me? You see, the Bible says that God never changes. So if he was good to them, he'll be good to us. If he was gracious to them, he'll be gracious to us. If he was patient, he'll be patient. If he is faithful, he will be faithful. Verse 34, now, he's saying, now, in our present context, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you, That has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. They're talking about present tense. Where are they on the cycle right now? They're they're talking about their distress. They're asking that God would not see as little the hardships that they're going through. They are at the bottom of the cycle and they are crying out to a patient and faithful God to help them. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. God is faithful, and we, we, not them, we have acted wickedly. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. They're still under the power of the Persian Empire and and they're still being heavily taxed and oppressed. They describe themselves as slaves. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves, verse 37, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They're at the bottom of the cycle. They are distressed right now. And rather than trying to climb out of it, This is the first time they choose to talk about themselves. 37 verses have gone by, and now they're finally talking about themselves. They've been talking about God and his character. And now they're asking the God who is good, the God who is gracious, the God who is patient, and the God who is faithful to help them. Maybe you're here today, and you're at the bottom of the cycle. Maybe you're here today, and you are in great distress. Maybe that activity that you were engaged in that seemed really fun and really pleasurable, maybe that activity has become an addiction. And the thing that you once enjoyed voluntarily, you are now completely enslaved to. You're in great distress. Now is the time to cry out to God. Maybe you are so hurt and so broken by, by a relationship that just went wrong. And you are just, you're just falling apart. Now's the time to call out to God in your distress. He's ready to forgive you. Maybe you're drowning in debt because of bad choices that you've made. And now is the time to cry out to God and to ask him for mercy. He is a faithful God. Maybe you're overwhelmed by anxiety and worry because you're not sure what's going to happen and you're just wrestling to get control of a situation and you're just overwhelmed with stress. Now's the time 
to cry out to God. Because it all depends on his character. So the people cried out and God answered. But it's interesting how they talk about their leaders in verse 32. It talks about the kings, princes, priests, and prophets. These were the leaders, and these were the ones who led the people of God astray. The kings let them down. The prophets let them down. The priests let them down. The political leaders, the spiritual leaders, they let them down. But as the Bible goes on, it tells us about another leader who emerges. He's a king, he's a prophet, and he's a priest. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who has ultimately, once and for all, reached down to us in our distress and has brought us to God. The way to God is paved in forgiveness. And that forgiveness is made possible through Jesus Christ. All of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of those things were paid for in full when Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. He died for you. Even when God was good to you and you rebelled against him, he died for you. Even when he was gracious to you and gave you a second chance, he died for you. Even when he was patient with you, when you kept going around in the cycle, he died for you. And he has made a way for you to receive eternal life by believing in him. And here's what we need to understand and it's the second point of your notes. It's on the, on the back page there. Is that confession, what the people of Israel are doing here, confession is essential for establishing a relationship with Jesus and also for enjoying a relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know that the way to begin that relationship, to establish that relationship, is through confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness. Jesus told the story about a guy who found himself in great distress. He found himself at the, at the very bottom of the cycle, lower than any of us could have ever pictured ourselves. This guy found himself, literally, he was in a pigsty. He was so hungry that he was longing to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. And he got to that place because he turned away from his father. He asked his living father if he could have his inheritance before his father died. Culturally communicating to his father, I I would actually prefer it if you were dead. I don't want a relationship with you, I just want your stuff. Don't we do that with God? God, I don't want you, but I want all the benefits of being one of your creatures. And he took all of that inheritance and he went off. He moved away from his father and he lived in rebellion. And he did things his own way and eventually he ran out of money. He came to the end of himself. He chose to sin and he chose to suffer. And he's sitting there in the pigsty, so hungry, longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And then Jesus tells him the story that the guy came to his senses And he went back to his father and he went back to his father and he was going to give a confession. He was going to ask for forgiveness. And he thought he knew how his father would react. But the way that his father reacted was so incredible. His father came to him with open arms. 
His, his father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and clothed him and held a feast for him. And Jesus wants us to know that God is ready to forgive. And that's how a relationship with God begins. And that is the message that Jesus came to bring. Jesus also said, I didn't come for healthy people. I came for sick people. If you go to the walk-in clinic and talk to the nurse or the doctor, but you won't tell them what your symptoms are, you won't point to what part of your body hurts, they can't help you. That's what confession is important. He came to help those who are sick. And so you can confess your sin today and establish that relationship. But if you have already established that relationship, you need to know that your enjoyment of your relationship with God Depends on confession. Your relationship with God doesn't depend on confession because it's a one-time thing. Jesus died once for all. But enjoying that relationship with him depends on confession. And confession is something that, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is something that needs to be happening regularly in our lives. Look at what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Give us today. What do we need today? We need daily bread. What else do we need today? There's an and there. And forgive us. Every day is a new day to experience forgiveness. Every day is a new day to confess to God our sins. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We come to the throne to receive mercy and to find grace. Sometimes that mercy and grace helps us fight temptation. But other times, that mercy and grace comes when we confess our sin because we know we've done something. So confession is something that we need to be involved in regularly, but so often we can take a truth from God's word and twist it. And so I want to clarify for you some things about confession. And so here are some approaches to confession that are harmful. When some of us hear that we need to confess our sins regularly... Our mind goes in the wrong place. It's not just about enjoying a relationship with God. It's about somehow reestablishing it. So here's an approach that's harmful. If you think that ongoing confession secures your salvation, that's very harmful. That will lead to perpetual insecurity. Jesus said, it is finished when he died on the cross. He died once and for all. These are good times to say an amen because this is true. It's over and done with. Your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. You have been justified. You have been redeemed. You have been rescued. You have been reconciled to God. And nothing can change that. Height, depth, angels, demons. It doesn't matter what it is. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so when you confess your sin regularly, it's not that you're going right back to the very beginning and restarting your relationship with God. No, it's you're enjoying the fact that no matter what you've done, past, present, or future, 
You can be forgiven. Don't think for a moment that if you're driving on the 410 and then someone cuts you off and you get angry with them and you don't confess it and then get hit by a transport truck that you're not going to heaven. Don't think that just because you haven't confessed a certain sin that you haven't been convicted of or haven't realized. Don't think that. That's not why we have ongoing confession. It's not to establish the relationship. It's to enjoy the relationship with God. Here's the, here's the second approach to confession that's, that's harmful. Thinking that ongoing confession is needed because a sinner is your identity. No, you... Some of us get into this routine of confessing to God as a God, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, I'm dirt, I'm a sinner, my, my heart's deceitful and wicked. And Listen, that's not who you are if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been given a new heart. Pastor Chris on February 14th gave such a, a great message about how we've been given a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. You've been made new. The reason why sin makes us miserable is because we've been changed. Before you became a Christian, you could sin all you wanted. You didn't care. But you have a new heart. And your new heart can't live with sin in your life. And so you've got to confess. But don't confess thinking that your sin is your identity. No, Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and making you new. That is your identity. So those are some harmful ways. Here's a couple of healthy ways to approach confession. Firstly, that ongoing confession kills pride in my life. That when I have an ongoing dialogue with God going on about my sin, just telling him, God, this is what I've done. This is what I thought. God, forgive me. When I have that ongoing confession happening, it kills pride. And I stop looking around with sort of my nose up thinking that I'm better than other people. Why? Because I'm constantly talking to God about my sin. Here's the other aspect. It, it silences the accusations from Satan. Satan is bent on, listen, he couldn't stop God from saving you. And now his strategy is to try to make it so that you don't enjoy being saved. The joy of the Lord is supposed to be your strength. Jesus came so that we might have joy and have it abundantly. These are great times to say amen. And, but Satan comes to, to steal and kill and to destroy Jesus came so that we would have abundant life. And he will accuse you when, you when a sin comes to mind, something that you did long in the past or something that you did recently. Satan will start to put things in your mind. He'll start to whisper in your ear and say, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really care about you. This is, look, look at who you are. Look at what you did. But listen, when you when you're, have ongoing confession, you'd be like, actually, he does love me. I was just talking to him about that very thing you're trying to talk to me about. Your accusation, that has nothing, no bearing. I know I'm forgiven. I knew that it was finished, and even the stuff that happens afterwards, I know that he is with me. Here's the third one. Ongoing confession prevents hidden sin from growing. Sin is like gangrene. It's like mildew. It thrives in the dark. When you hide it from others, when you hide it from God, it just grows. The psalmist says, my, my bones wasted away when I kept silent about my sin. It will just eat you from the inside out. The shame, the guilt, and we can be protected from that through ongoing confession. Just talking to God. Sin loses its power when we talk to God about it, when we confess it to him. 
And then here's the fourth one. Ongoing confession magnifies my appreciation of the gospel. Ongoing confession magnifies my appreciation from the gospel. And I want, us to, I want us to understand this. I get lots of people who talk to me after preaching, especially on times on Communion Sunday, where we talk about our need to confess our sins. And some people, they ask a very sincere question, and a very important question is, hey, hey Pastor Ted, if, if you're always saying that we need to confess our sin, aren't you kind of undermining the whole it is finished part? Aren't you sort of saying that we need, we need to do this? Listen, no. It doesn't downplay what Jesus does. It magnifies what Jesus does. That he is so good, so gracious, so patient, so faithful, that him, 2,000 years ago, died on a cross for sins, before I was even born, knowing what I would do, past, present, and future, and to be able to talk to him about that. Jesus, I love you. Thank you that I can be forgiven. And we need to understand today that Jesus came to tell us that the Father's arms are open wide, that we can receive forgiveness through his cross today. So let's pray together now. And so Heavenly Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray right now that you would be speaking so clearly for your glory. And God, I pray right now for anyone who's here today who is struggling with the guilt and shame of sin, if there are people who are here today who don't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would confess to you. I pray that you would point them to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are following Jesus but are struggling, Lord. I pray that they would freely confess where they've fallen short of your glory. And God, I pray that you would work in their life, Lord. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.